Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Robert Aslan, the Senior Vice President for Policy at the Business Council of Canada, a Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Forum and the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and a Senior Advisor to Prime Ministers and Finance Ministers, including the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. I should say that Robert is a good friend and a regular collaborator on policy papers about innovation, productivity, and technology. Even though we've worked for different governments, few people have influenced my own thinking about public policy, including the nexus between economics and geopolitics, than him. I'm grateful to speak with him today about some of these issues, including a paper that he published with the Public Policy Forum in September 2022 about reconceptualizing the institutions that comprise Canada's science and technology architecture. In effect, as listeners will hear, Robert has argued that our current mix of public institutions are not well suited to carry out the type of industrial policy that he thinks Canada needs for an era of geopolitical and technological competition. Robert, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's great to be with you, Sean. I appreciate the invitation. We're speaking on the morning of January 11th. We published an article by you this morning at the Hub, incidentally, that both makes the case for industrial policy and challenges a lot of the commentary about industrial policy. Let's start there. Robert, why did you feel the need to write this article at this point? And what do you think the critics of industrial policy are getting wrong? Sean, both on the, I feel, on the why and the what of industrial policy, I feel like we need to get past the caricature aspect of the debate. Um, and I can explain a bit what I mean by that. On the why, I think this is uh, enduring debate uh, that I guess goes back to the 80s or the 70s. Uh, in a very simplistic framework, which is, you know, free market versus uh, big government. Uh, in other words, industrial policy should be about no government intervention at all or a lot of government ent- intervention. And to me, it strikes me as a, a, a as not the right way to think about it. Uh, I think there's a reasonable m- middle where obviously markets and government don't operate in in universes that are that are fundamentally different uh, or in parallel, and also that um, the debate needs to work these needs to move on what works, uh, and we know what works. We we've seen clear uh, success uh, success cases on industrial policy. So I feel that that's where we need to move the debate to. The other thing I'll say, Sean, is that. As you and I have thought about and, and wrote about, there are political economy goals that are going to be there, whether it's climate change, more and more now national security, given the new geopolitical reality. And in these 
instances, I think one has to think about how best to do industrial policy, how best to meet these goals, these political economy objective in a way that is not uh, detrimental or negative to market-driven uh, outcomes. And so I think this is where the debate needs to go. And there are specific uh, issues that need to be addressed, and there are policy instruments that need to be debated. But it seems to me that we have to go a bit beyond like the caricature aspect of this debate. We'll get into some of those policy instruments and indeed institutional reforms that you think ought to underpin a modern industrial policy. But before we get there, Robert, let's take up what you describe as the caricature of industrial policy and a lot of the commentary that we see from think tanks and columnists and others. A common criticism that you address in today's piece for The Hub combines the idea that any market intervention risks succumbing to political forces. And in any case, the government isn't capable of anticipating market developments. Now, we know each other well. And one thing that strikes me, Robert, is that unlike a lot of proponents of industrial policy, you aren't ignorant to these arguments or dismissive of these concerns. In fact, you have your own critiques of state capacity and the tendency towards short-term politics. In light of that, why do you think, Robert, that industrial policy, as you conceive of it, can be successful? How does it seek to minimize these risks that you yourself would acknowledge? So because it has been, uh, we have clear cases where it has been successful. And I think there's a a misunderstanding or a lack of uh, sophistication about what works and what doesn't in the current debate. Uh, I would argue, for example, that when you look at the U.S. space sector or defense sector over the last 60, 70 years, it's pretty evident that policy instruments that were used and the policy design of industrial policy has been quite successful. And no, it's not subsidies. It was mostly around R&D, industrial research and innovation. And so that's how you get to good outcomes. As you say, Sean, there are many ways government can do, uh, you know, interventions in the economy that will be detrimental. And we've seen a lot of cases that have been, for example, very critical in the way that the government of Canada, not just this current government, but over the last uh, half century has thought and conducted an industrial policy, industrial strategy. Part of the reason I think we've been so bad at it is we never had really to do it well given we were never threatened, we're a very gifted country in terms of uh, natural resources, our trading relationship with the U.S., but now these things have changed fundamentally, and we need to rethink about how we go about our own economic competitiveness uh, going forward. At the end, um, I think one has to be clear what problems are we trying to solve here, and the main problem we're trying to solve is an economic one, a growth one, where will growth come from and what is the role of the state, of governments to help nurture it? Not in a way that is uh, overwhelming or overreaching, but in a way that is, and we've seen successes, uh, that it, that is you know, a good conduit to, to long-term growth. That's a good segue, Robert, to another line of criticism, industrial policy that I wanted to take up. And that's the tendency for industrial policy to have a a mix of different objectives. It can become a bit amorphous from industrial policy for creating jobs to industrial policy 
for reducing regional disparity to industrial policy to advance climate goals and on and on and on. Your objectives, by contrast, are, are quite narrow and specific. You want to boost innovation, productivity, and economic growth full stop. Do you want to talk a bit about the underlying goals that are motivating your thinking and why you think an industrial policy model can help to achieve them? So specifically, Sean, what I'm mostly obsessed about, and you and I obviously go back on this uh, because I think we share the same diagnostic, is building this bridge between intellectual capital and private firms or a market. And this is why I find we need to be focused on, um, you know, it, it matters a great deal how in an, in an, an economy that is increasingly um, driven, uh, where growth is incre- increasingly driven by intellectual capital, how you nurture, make sure that all these investments in public R&D, in education, in the talent that you have in your country translate into economic outcomes. And it occurs to me that we've been very unintentional about doing this, making sure this happens. Now, is it simple? No, it's not. Um, and this is mostly why I focus so much on the architecture of science technology, because I think that's where it needs to emanate mostly. And, and so what is really important, again, is policy design and policy instruments. And I feel that when, when one thinks about industrial policy, one needs to think about specifically, you know, in a very sophisticated way, how you build uh, these policies so that they are effective. You and I have studied the DARPA model. We know it's been effective. Some have reservation whether it could be exported, um, you know, to other countries or even to other sectors. We now know in the U.S. that it serves as a model for many sectors. Uh, President Biden just created a ARPA H for health innovation. Uh, there's uh, ARPA E for energy. Um, you know, there are other models in the, in, in other countries that serves these purposes where this bridge. Uh, where we need to commercialize R&D and, you know, absorb it in, in private firms and scale these companies is where we need to, I think, focus on. Uh, just as an aside, Robert, as I was preparing for today's conversation and reading some of the materials that you've produced over the past 12 months or so, I was struck by how passive our R&D model is in Canada. That is to say, how much it is carried out without some kind of overarching set of priorities. And, and I contrast that with a speech that you cite at some length in your latest piece for us at the Hub that refers to a speech by the U.S. Commerce Secretary who outlines some pretty specific goals for U.S. economic policy that ostensibly then can be translated into public policy across a range of areas, including but not limited to R&D spending, I think if you put that question to the current government or the previous government, for that matter, what are those clear objectives that are guiding policymaking, including with respect to science and technology, you'd get a lot of banal answers, but not the kind of specificity that we see guiding U.S. policy. Let me turn to another subject you take head on in your latest piece for us, and that is kind of composition of industrial policy. Um, that is to say, there's a tendency to talk about industrial policy 
is narrowly about public subsidies, mostly to private firms. And you argue in the piece that that's the wrong way to think about it. It's as much about getting institutions and mechanisms for public-private innovation partnerships right as it is about subsidies or even the magnitude of public investment. Do you want to elaborate a bit on this point? So I guess when people say, you know, government doesn't know how to pick winners, the larger point they miss is, as you say, sectoral composition of the economy. And what what it what is meant by that is that it matters a great deal whether a country has healthy productive sectors by which they actually produce goods. Advanced manufacturing is really important because uh when one one thinks about trade, for example, and current trade account deficits that we've had for the last decade or so since the, the great financial crisis, we need to realize that we're not as productive as we used to be. Um, you know, there's been a lot of bleeding in the manufacturing sector, for example. It's not unique to Canada, but certainly Canada since the 70s has been, has seen this, this trend, uh, very clearly. So, so the sexual composition matters a great deal. And this is where, it needs to be focused. Again, it's not a question of economic planning. It's more a question of how do you incent innovation uh, to occur, to occur. Again, I go back to this bridge between public R&D on the public-private partnership side, how science can be translated into productivity growth and future prosperity. The, the reality is, Sean, is when you look at the history of growth, and great economists have written about this from about 1870 to now. What has triggered growth is essentially technological innovation and didn't happen in, in a vacuum. It happened because private firms, uh, were able to create some capacity to innovate. Uh, and that emerged in, in great part, I would argue, from the public R&D that was being done. And so this, for example, you know, I'm, I'm kind of very focused on this uh, historical role that corporate labs have played. If you look at Bell Labs, for example, in the U.S., DuPont, these big companies that had these capacities that have now been left aside because uh, it wasn't lucrative enough, I guess, or too risky uh, as an endeavor, that mechanism per se has not been replaced by something modern. And this is why I think on the science, technology, architecture of it, we need to recreate it in a matter of uh, public-private partnership. Let me take up that point now directly, Robert. When we talk about economic growth, one increasingly hears various ideas about growth-enhancing policies from conventional ones like deregulation or tax cuts to new ones like childcare in housing. In your September 22 paper for the Public Policy Forum entitled Growth, Innovation, and the Organization of Science Policy in Canada, you actually make the case that one of the most important growth-enhancing steps that the government could take is to seriously reform public institutions dedicated to science and technology. Do you want to elaborate on your argument? Why is organizational reform to Canada's science and technology architecture so crucial to achieving higher rates of growth? What problem are you trying to solve? So first, I would say that policymakers need to acknowledge that science-based institutions are not just public good, but they are essential economic enablers in the world of increased uh, geopolitical competition. I think this is a really fundamental point people need to understand is that somehow 
we we've been led to believe that uh, science is kind of its own silo and doesn't matter for 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 political economy reason and obviously the world that we live in now is fundamentally different and this needs to be this fundamental recognition to start with secondly i think the ways we do science how we empower our best scientists and researchers to do frontier work on the most pressing challenges that we have and how we facilitate that kind of knowledge transfer in the real economy it's kind of central to how we have to conceptualize conceptualize growth uh, potential in our uh, in our economy so in con- in concrete terms it means uh, it needs to be a rebalance between fundamental research or curiosity driven research which is absolutely important and a huge driver in innovation but a, a rebalance between this and industrial research at scale which in Canada is almost non-existent. The other thing that we do very badly, as I said, is the transfer technology mechanism. In other words, we have all these re- research chair, university chairs that, that produce great research, but somehow it doesn't translate into economic out- outputs and products and patents and intellectual property, which is where it needs to go. Um, and so uh, we have to align our research strength with you know, what our private firms need in a real economy. And I find that the arm lanes model, science uh, model that we've adopted since World War II is fundamentally inadequate in the circumstances we live in. Do you want to talk a bit about the types of institutional reforms that you'd like to see? I I won't ask you to go into great detail about specific mandates and structures and budgets and so on, but what are some of the principles or approaches that you think ought to be reflected in new or existing science and technology organizations? To me, Sean, it's mostly a question about incentives and what incentives people have to make certain things happen or not. And again, because our, I guess, R&D architecture relies on academics doing basically or pursuing uh, their own research in a way that what matters is more citation and academic journals versus maybe IP creation, intellectual property creation. I think uh, that leads me to believe and others like and you as well as we as we have written uh, that those are the wrong incentives or that those are the incentives that need to be changed so that we have better outcomes on the economic front. Again, I'm not saying that researchers uh, only objective should be industrial policy. But certainly, uh, when you think about all the, the investments we make in public R&D um, and researchers in universities, it seems to me that as other countries have done uh, much better, it seems just normal to be a bit more intentional about the incentives you are creating for people to make the right things. When there was a pandemic, the reality is the incentive was clear and everybody kind of turned their attention to it. And we solved a big problem in very rapid time with vaccines. Climate change is another example. We're going to need to accelerate the pace of technological innovation if we want to get ahead of this problem, which obviously we're far behind. And it seems to me that the incentives are not there necessarily on the research side to get us where we need to be. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. 
Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Implicit in your comments is the notion that we've decentralized too much research priority setting to the interests and preferences of individual academics and that we should have a set of national priorities and science and technology programs should tilt towards more public-private laboratories and projects and instead of what's sometimes referred to as, quote, an investigator-driven model. Uh, why do you think we ought to be more prescriptive in how science and technology funds are allocated and place greater emphasis on the private sector and away from university-driven research? There's just this urgency, I find, on uh, productivity growth, on the need to drive economic policy with clear objective and technological innovation. And it seems that it's almost like the two are disconnected from each other. And, and so there's an urgency to think about um, research and science, again, as I said, as enablers, uh, you know, and the institutions behind it as enablers of economic growth. And I think most countries uh, that do industrial policy well get this. I, I, I'll just give the example of Netherlands as a country about half the size of New Brunswick um, that went to a very difficult uh, period uh, over their history and uh, kind of realized they had to produce a lot of agriculture in uh, a land that was, uh, you know, compared to Canada, very, very small. And so they built this like R&D architecture around precision farming uh, with universities being integrated with private firms. And today, Netherlands is a second world exporter on ag food. So those are the example I think we need to think about when it doesn't happen, uh, you know, by accident. There's there's an attention and there's a policy design and policy instruments behind these things happening. And uh, I find Canada has been very complacent, very complacent when it comes to thinking about these things. I just say in parentheses, Robert, it's been fun and exciting to see your thinking evolve and take shape on these issues. You know, in effect, what I hearing you say is that we ought to put public R&D in the service of some overarching national goals, particularly with respect to economic growth and productivity, and stop thinking of it as, for all intents and purposes, a financial entitlement for universities and university researchers. They're going to be a crucial part of an overall R&D or science and technology strategy focused on national goals, but they have to be integrated into that broader framework, and that's been missing for some time. Let me ask you a question that we've thought and talked about a lot, and that's the potential trade-offs between incremental versus more transformative or radical innovation. You can regularly read these arguments in favor of incremental innovation and building on existing ideas and technologies. I note Globe and Mail op-ed about a week ago that made that case. Of course, that's true, 
But it strikes me as kind of banal. In any economy, most progress is going to be incremental. But that incremental progress ostensibly rests on something. And I think, as you've said a couple of times in this conversation, it rests on transformative step change progress in the form of major discoveries, breakthroughs, and then ultimately commercialization. Do you want to talk a bit about how you think of these questions and how they may manifest themselves in public policy? I just want to say first, I've come to think about it almost as a cultural problem in a sense that when you look at breakthrough technologies and what has enabled it, uh, you look at the Sputnik crisis in the U.S. in the 50s, um, you know, Russians beating Americans to the space. You look at uh, Israel in cyber uh, security. You look at Germany in advanced manufacturing, at, you know, during during the wars and after the wars. They, they were kind of driven by some like real threats. Uh, and I find, again, go back to my complacency, ter- you know, kind of narrative that Canada, because we've been very, I guess, gifted, protected somehow by external forces in Canada, that uh, we, we've never felt really threatened to kind of think that way. And so it does require change in institutions, but it, it does require, in my view, a big change in the way culturally we think about breakthrough discovery. And again, I, I just don't see it in a way that is uh, convincing. So I, I think the policy design to get to breakthrough technology, you and I have written this paper on why we think we need an advanced research agency and what are the imperatives behind it to, to produce some outcomes is usually important, but I think um, on the outcomes of breakthrough technology, Sean, to state the obvious is that if you really want a growth to happen, if you want productivity to happen, you can't just be happy with incremental innovation. You need these breakthrough technology innovation and histories there to prove it. And so I, I don't see why Canada with our bench strength on human capital, on uh, talent cannot be a country where we think of ourselves as makers as opposed to takers of breakthrough technologies. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Rivera. You know, oftentimes, it seems to me that the case that you hear in, in the public debate about incremental innovation, you know, on one hand, it sounds sophisticated. On the other hand, it sounds like a self-rationalization for maintaining the status quo as opposed to thinking more ambitiously and more critically about are science and technology institutions, the incentives that you've talked about, and the set of reforms to aspire to, as you say, be a place that is capable of producing major breakthroughs. And, and, and just, just on that, Sean, I think it's important historically, we have done breakthrough discoveries. You think about insulin, you think about uh, basically what is now uh, 5G technology uh, in tel- in telcoms, uh, telcos, you know, came from uh, a lot of what we did in our corporate labs, uh, you know, under companies that don't exist anymore, but that were very important industrial components of this uh, of this uh, of our economy in the past. So, so again, uh, you know, I, I find a lot of people saying, "Oh, well, this is not something Canada can do. We can't do the DARPA model. It's way too." difficult to achieve. I just don't accept that argument. I, I, I think Canada is as well positioned as any country to do this kind of ambitious endeavor. You know, putting my cards on the table, Robert, I completely agree with you, and not just because we're friends, that we need institutional reform, 
to our science and technology organizations. But I also recognize that reform would be hard. It would take time. And as you've said a couple of times, there's outstanding questions about personnel and culture and how you cultivate the kind of spirit of entrepreneurialism that we've been an ambition that we've been talking about. Tyler Cowan, the American economist who shares our view about the need to fix the plumbing of science and technology organizations in the U.S. context, has argued for essentially going around pre-existing institutions by creating new ones in which you can cultivate a different and better culture. What do you think about that? How much of the problem can be solved by simply creating new, small, more entrepreneurial science and technology organizations as opposed to trying to fix the current ones? So I think... I, there's a lot of merit in there, and you and I basically based, you know, in a sense, proposed this with this advanced research agency that the government really is still struggling with. Obviously, still hasn't come up with a clear answer on. But I think you know it, it's really difficult to change uh, people's behaviors, and one cannot underestimate how you and I have been in government. How it is hard to change, you know, incentives in a system and have people really focus on what needs to be done. And part of it is a clear, you know, it's a lack of clear objectives, I find. I, I personally think it's not an either or. You know, one thing I'm worried about in this debate is that people think that if we don't do moonshots, we can't, you know, we won't achieve innovation. And it's not an either or. We know that, of course, moonshots are risky and DARPA failed many times before it succeeded. But uh, in the U.S., for example, they have this great balance between the equivalent of our granting councils and these mission-driven agencies like NASA and DARPA and now ARPA-H. seems to me that this balance is necessary in Canada. So um, as opposed to creating like a niche program in NSERC and like a, in a research council, I would prefer going with new institution, even as a pilot, and the great thing about the DARPA model, uh, as to be said, uh, Sean, is that it's um, it, you know it's very rigorous on pulling the plug when things don't work. Our problem with our current institution is that does it work? Does it not work? We don't know because we keep doing the same thing all over, and there's there's never kind of a a, a clear assessment of what leads to innovation outcomes, and so. If you don't have that kind of assessment and say, okay, I'm not doing this anymore because it doesn't work, then people will keep doing what they've been doing. This is just the way humans are. And so I think, again, I go back to short-term versus long-term, which you and I have been preoccupied with. Policymakers need to understand the long-term game. And long-term game is about using different policy instruments if uh, the old ones didn't work, you know. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a question about fiscal policy. We're having this question in, in the middle of January. All things being equal, we'll have a federal budget sometime in the next, say, 8 to 12 weeks or so. The government is, finds itself in a difficult position in which it's, on one hand, coming off the highs of emergency pandemic spending. On the other hand, is facing calls both from the general public to help mitigate the costs and consequences of inflation and, of course, its parliamentary arrangement with the New Democrats. I won't ask you to get into the kind of politics of fiscal policy, but as someone who spent time working on federal budgets, just open up a general question. How should we think about the fiscal policy pressures facing the government and the kind of right 
approach to navigating a, a pretty complex economic environment. The one thing I want to I want to say on fiscal policy, Sean, is I I'm worried about this like rosy view out there that everything is going to be okay. Uh, it was all right to spend 20% of GDP, uh, you know, during the pandemic, and, and and now nothing has no one has to be worried about that this jet to GDP ratio will decline. But of course, the, the world is not as simple as this. In a sense that, in the current projections, the government make key assumptions: one that there won't be major recession in the next five years; second, that inflation will come back at two percent quite rapidly. And third, that the interest it pays on its debt, you know, bond yields, will stay relatively low. But we know that these three things uh, could be challenged in very significant way. The reason in the 90s we struggled, of course, uh, with the deficit was because the primary deficit became somehow difficult to manage because of interest rates keep kept rising and we lost control of it. And so there's a scenario where inflation gets down to four or five percent, but it still keeps, you know, interest payments quite high. And and so I just think, you know, and I'm I'm proud to say I don't want to give too much uh, insight about it, but David Dodge and I have collaborated on a paper that will be coming out soon that looks at different scenarios uh, on the fiscal trajectory with these parameters uh, that I just explained. And I think it will show that people should be more concerned about, uh, you know, the health, the the uh, the health of the fiscal framework than the current assumptions uh, out there are. It doesn't mean that we are nowhere near the nineties uh, and that, you know, the, fa- the 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 sky will fall. But I think we need to be less complacent about uh, risk in our fiscal framework. Great insights, as there's been throughout this conversation. We'll have to have you back to talk about that forthcoming paper with the Public Policy Forum when it's ready for release. In the meantime, I'd encourage listeners to check out Robert's September 2022 paper, Growth, Innovation, and the Organization of Science Policy in Canada. Robert Aslan, Vice President of Policy at the Business Council in Canada, Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Forum and the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Merci beaucoup, Sean. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcasts with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.